Hey everyone, welcome to episode 8 of The Node. Thanks for your patience with the gap between episodes. I've had a lot going on in my personal life with a move out of state, so that's kind of thrown a wrench into some projects for the time being. I'm hoping, now that I'm entering a more regular schedule, to have episodes out more regularly. Today I'm talking with Amber Thatcher. Amber is a PhD candidate in experimental psychology at the University of Montana. She's a wealth of knowledge in animal behavior and social systems. In this podcast, we talk about animal sociality, social systems, animal language, tool use, hypnosis, and a whole lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation. Please welcome Amber Thatcher. So he just pulled and pulled and pulled until the lead rope broke. And he was like pulling back so far that that momentum just carried him all the way back. Oh my God. Yeah. And you didn't get crushed. That's I good. didn't get crushed. No. Nope. That's one thing, knock on wood, is that I have only been like hospitalized for horseback riding once. Okay. And that I deep tissue bruised my hip and that was it. Okay. Ouch. Um, it did hurt. It hurt for a long time. I had to use a walker. <laughs> I couldn't even use crutches. That's kind of funny that you're like, I've only been hospitalized one time. Yeah. Is it normal to be hospitalized a bunch of times if you're a horse um, person? I wouldn't say hospitalized, but like more people that typically get injuries, especially when you're working with untrained horses mm-hmm. it's like my first horse that i ever like rode and trained on my own was a mustang okay um so, so she a wild horse yes okay she came from the blm wow um she would stand in the middle of the arena and kick the bottom of my feet with her back feet because she didn't like you um because she wanted me off <laughs> <laughs> oh and then God. she would refuse to move i'm like st- sitting in the middle on her just kicking like can <laughs> we please walk just a step Whoa. So, yeah, she, we created a special bond, though, after that. Did no she... one else, like, could ride her the way that I did. Anytime that she was having any problems, they put me on her, and she was an angel. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really sweet. Well, that kind of leads me into the start <laughs> of the podcast in a way. Okay. Because I just want to, I want to start this by kind of getting to know you as okay. a person and track like the beginning of your interests and how they've mm. progressed until now. Okay. So do you want to just do a brief introduction of yourself and then we all guide us through the details? Sure. Okay. Um, my name's Amber Thatcher. Okay. Um, I have my undergraduate degree in psychology from New Mexico State University. And then I have my master's in experimental psychology from Northern Arizona University. And now I'm working on my PhD in experimental psychology with an emphasis in animal behavior. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for being here and talking with me and us today. Yeah, I'm very excited. Awesome. Okay. So we talked a little bit about your first pet. (laughs) I can get that all recorded, but where did your interest for psychology and animal behavior like now that you have 
uh, hindsight, <laughs> where do you think that started? Um, I've thought about this a lot, actually, and I think it started like right off the bat when I was really young. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, where there's just desert everywhere and my parents had three acres of property so we had like the house on one acre and then there was desert behind and desert in front of us yeah and I mean I don't remember like why we did this but we would just go down and like see what animals we could catch Mm -hmm. and then we would put them in a terrarium yeah and I would learn everything I could about that animal for like a week and then we would set it free again well, how did you learn about it? Just like watching it? Or? I would go to like the library at my elementary school and uh-huh. get books on them. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Do you have any in particular that you remember? Like um, right we caught a lot of horny toads. Mm-hmm. They were like really, they were just all over the place on my parents' property. Um, they're not anymore. And I think it's because the ants have left, which is their main source of food. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But we caught a lot of snakes. Okay. Um, there's like king snakes, bull snakes, and then rattlesnakes are very common in Arizona. Caught a couple scorpions, tarantulas. Wow. There's a lot of like desert, you know, like intense desert animals, which yeah. like <laughs> now I don't exactly love. I can deal with them, mm-hmm. but like I'm never like I'm not a bug person. I'm not real like. Sure, reptiles are cool, but they're not, like, a type of animal that I'm most passionate about. But I think it got it, like, really ingrained in just who I am as a person. Yeah. Is, like, learning about animals. I just want to know everything that I can about them and what they do and why they do it and, like, how they think. Yeah. That's really cool that you took the extra step to actually learn about them yeah um i feel like a lot of kids go out and catch animals but the the concept of you going to the library as a kid and looking up animals that makes a lot of sense yeah i even did it with species that like there was no way that i could interact with like i remember getting a bunch of books on tigers once I had a really good relationship with the librarian at my school. Nice. <laughs> she lived in my neighborhood. Oh, all, cool. And like, yeah, we were good buds. She ordered all the books for you? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. She always made sure that I was like well supplied. Okay. <laughs> so you started off looking just in your back three acres, mm-hmm. picking up animals and mm-hmm. learning about them. That's really cool. And then you progressed into your undergrad and you studied psychology in your undergrad I did I initially didn't start out with um the intention of getting a psych degree Mm -hmm. my major originally was wildlife biology okay and I took a couple classes and I like really I enjoyed the subject but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for which was animal behavior okay they focus more on I would say like the interaction between the environment and a specific species. Yeah. Um, and then a lot, of course, on like preserving the ecosystems and environment that those species live in. Um, and it's, of course, very important and very cool. Mm-hmm. I still have lots of little like facts that I remember from my undergrad. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't behavior based enough for me. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of started looking around to see what's out there that would give me an animal behavior like side of things because my 
my university didn't have like an animal behavior major. They did, but it was all about like livestock and farming and right that kind of thing. More so, application based. Yeah, yeah, and like teaching people how to be good farmers mm-hmm. and like what you should feed your cattle that kind of stuff yeah so okay in your undergrad you're already looking into the animal behavior side of things which is not something that a lot of people think about i don't think um i agree yeah yeah and it's very obscure in a way it's not it it's not about like how do we create the best farm animals etc would you talk a little bit about why animal behavior is important and a little more about how it caught your attention? Yeah. Um, one thing that I've come across a lot in like my readings and stuff is that, you know, humans, we like to think that we're like special mm-hmm. and that there's all of these things that set us apart from other animals, mm-hmm. um, which as we're like learning more and more about all of these different species, we're realizing that we're not as special as we think we are. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of always been my point of view. I've always been so interested in animals and like what it would be like to be an animal. Right. I feel like their experiences are just as important as ours. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they live on this earth. They are experiencing the same things we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been interested in like, okay, but is that experience at all similar to ours like Mm -hmm. do they have these kind of same thoughts and thought processes about the world or do they just kind of truck along and you know are they just like little robotic exactly yeah there's in the past a lot of people have been like oh they're all instinctual like it's not alert they're not learning new things like Mm -hmm. they were born to do this one specific thing and that's all they do they don't think about why they do it right or how they do it. Yeah, I remember growing up and learning how to fish, and I was really concerned about like hurting the fish <laughs> with the hook in its yeah. mouth. And I remember being told like fish don't feel pain. Oh, and, yeah. Er, and I remember uh, my dad told me once people used to think that animals don't feel pain. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's been this kind of evolution, um, even within the scientific community, of like what animals we can use for research, what guidelines surround specific species within research. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And like, as we're learning more about these species, we're more and more being like, oh, maybe we shouldn't, you know, be doing this stuff to them. Okay. So I want to jump into what you just said, like the question that you had, do animals think about the things that they're doing Mm -hmm. and like, how and why they're doing that and like what have you do you have an answer for that um I mean like it's hard to get that like concrete Mm -hmm. evidence Mm -hmm. um Gregory Burns is a researcher at Emory and he studies the neuroscience of of dogs essentially okay um and one thing that he has said um that I always loved was we can never know what it's like for a dog to be a dog. Right. But we can try and see if we can figure out what it's like for a human to be a dog. Okay. Um, so, like, still understanding that we're a human and we don't... It's impossible, at least right now, to understand the thought processes of animals. And, right. like, what they're thinking. And if, even if they have, like, consciousness. Mm-hmm. 
is a big kind of debate and hot topic in For the sure. world of ethology right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so taking that thought experiment a little farther, how yeah. does a human see if they, how does a human have the experience of a dog? That's right now, I would say that a lot of what we're doing is trying to combine like neuroscience and what a lot of people consider like the hard sciences, like biology and biological processes mm-hmm. um, with behavior yeah. to see how similar they are to like our own processes. So okay. with dogs, for example, do they experience like the same rush of neurotransmitters in a similar situation as humans do? So mm-hmm. like, do they have love and affection for their owners in the same way that their owners have love and affection for them? Right. Turns out they do. So they receive the same like rush of dopamine in their reward system in their brain whenever they smell or see mm-hmm. their owners. And it's different between stranger humans or like familiar strangers, meaning like they've met a couple times. Uh-huh. Like they have different neurological responses to each individual yeah which is something that we also have you know people friends family whatever whenever we see them or interact with them we get a similar rush of dopamine in our reward system right so we can kind of use that to assume that they must be kind of like feeling something at least pretty similar to what we do okay and then like these the amount or like the quality of the dopamine release would be related to like the strength of the relationship that the dog might have with a stranger versus a somewhat familiar person. Yeah. That's really interesting that it, it makes me really think about when I get into conversations or just the conversation that people have about how it's almost like if you can explain what's underlying a behavior or like what neurotransmitter or chemical is there facilitating a certain behavior mm-hmm. um it it makes it like mean less yeah so i guess there's just this almost feeling i have from experience i have talking to people that like once you throw dopamine in there <laughs> it's like oh your dog's just nice to you because it gets a dopamine <laughs> rush every time but you're nice to it or right yeah. you feed it yeah and so i guess how do you think about that like do you think cats or dogs actually care about you oh, in I think the care so. sense i think so it's not just the food you're giving them no it's not just you haven't just no. conditioned there's them. like this emotional connection that you have like uh-huh. if they in my mind and in a couple other researchers' minds, mm-hmm. um, they wouldn't have a different response with dopamine levels mm-hmm. to different humans if it was just all about, like, this person gives me food. Right. Because, like, Gregory Burns, he took a sample of his own scent and then his wife's scent. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does most of, like, the feeding and, um, well, actually, she does most most of the feeding Mm -hmm. And, like, cleaning up after them and whatnot. But he's, like, more, like, cuddly with them. Yeah. And they form a deeper or, it seems, stronger connection with him than they do with her. Mm -hmm. And you can even see that a bit with, like, Hmm. the experiment with rhesus macaque monkeys when they're babies. How they, the cloth versus food mothers, you know. 
they always still go to that cloth mother because they need, they want that emotional connection, that feeling of being cared for and, you know, comfort. Yeah. Um, that I think, again, just if, like association with this person gives me food doesn't ex- fully explain what's happening. Yeah. So how how deep do you think that goes? I mean, there's multiple levels that we could simplify this mm-hmm. on and... I don't expect you to have the full answer because I doubt there is a full answer. But a lot of people know about reward and like conditioning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's one level. I guess I'm really thinking about my relationship with my dog, which Mm -hmm. I feel is a very complex relationship. Oh, yeah. Like she, I don't think it would be going too far to say like, I think she thanks me for things. Oh, yeah. With Definitely affection and things like that she's very aware of like every person in a group Mm -hmm. and like will check on everybody Mm -hmm. and make sure everything's going okay um a really cool story we were talking about this before we started the podcast but when we went camping the other night Mm -hmm. um she was being a really good guard dog and she Mm -hmm. woke me up when these mountain goats came into our camp it's like hey something weird's (laughs) coming in she's like (laughs) (laughs) get up dude (laughs) check this stuff out and as soon as i got up and like looked at the mountain goats and I was like oh it's okay and I just told her like it's okay she just stopped barking and started watching them yeah so they read so much based off of your behavior or even yeah you know like your emotions and that's kind of I feel like dogs are really good at that horses are really good at that like Mm -hmm. if you're tense at all if you're nervous they pick up on that shit and they you know act accordingly they're like oh my rider's really nervous right so what is there to be nervous about i'm gonna be nervous because i don't know what to be nervous about yeah like there's just so much communication non-verbal communication between humans and animals and between animals yeah that goes on that we don't really realize yeah it's kind of crazy and then especially when you start thinking about what your animal might be picking up that you Mm -hmm. aren't like Mm -hmm. just dog smelling and hearing (laughs) versus yeah it's very i don't know i think people think about it a lot as a a, like almost a parasitic relationship when you have a pet that's like living with you but there's also there can be a lot of reciprocation in that relationship well that's kind of like the theory um about how and why dogs came about you know it's this theory that it was like this mutually beneficial relationship you know dogs came into you know early human civilization Mm -hmm. and provided like warnings and protection and then they got easy access to food and so that's kind of the idea is that we evolve together and part of what makes dogs dogs is because they evolved to fit into the lives of humans Mm -hmm. um which is very unique Like, even other pets that we've, you can say, kind of, quote-unquote, domesticated, aren't full... Like, it's just not exactly the same as dogs. Yeah. And it's because, I think, partially at least, of this evolutionary process in which all of the changes that they seem to make, or, like, maybe made unconsciously, or, you know, like, just happened randomly, as natural selection does, somehow made them to fit into our lives that much better right yeah and it tells the story of i guess behavior again and like why behavior is important Mm -hmm. it's like this is these behaviors 
certain behaviors have been selected for over thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. And yeah, I guess really what you're kind of getting into is that it goes a lot deeper than, well, I don't want to say that behavior is surface level, but like the behavior is very, it's much more complex than Mm -hmm. we might think of when we see an action in the world. Oh, definitely. That's something that's kind of coming to light more and more recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Carl Safina's new book, Becoming Wild, Mm -hmm. um, kind of talks about that and how behavior and culture is kind of this evolutionary process as well. Just like genes, it gets passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you can use that to kind of argue like each species has developed and evolutionarily split from each other partially because of their cultures yeah you know they learn these different behaviors and they learn these different methods of collecting food or finding mates or whatever it might be yeah and that split them off into different groups and then they stayed separate for so long that they became genetically diverse and different from one another oh wow so it's like behavior is driving species Speciesization. Yeah, I can't ever say it either. Speciesization. Yeah, it's a weird word. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's kind of cool because, well, it's cool. I remember learning in biology, I guess behavior was presented as a driving factor, but Mm -hmm. mostly through mate selection. Yeah. Do you think it goes beyond that? Oh, definitely. Like you can see it within... Honestly, we can even kind of start to see it now with certain species of animals like orcas. Okay. Orcas are developing these unique hunting systems that are passed down generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And it's already somewhat resulting in some genetic differences and really? and differences in like how their body is structured. So orcas that hunt mammals specifically mm-hmm. are be are becoming or developing, I guess, these wider jaws yeah. that are better suited for hunting mammals. Yeah. And so, in theory, that's kind of like leading down the line to fully separate this pod, this specific pod mm-hmm. of orcas one, one from pod. other orcas. Wow. It, I think I remember hearing something about that. Like, there's a certain pod that is starving because they only eat yep. salmon. Yep. Yeah. yeah, up in Alaska, there's, I think it's like the K or L pod, or I might be, you know, getting those wrongs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, yeah, they're, they're struggling a lot because their main source of food, the only thing that any of like their ancestors or their older um, like matriarchs and grandmothers essentially know how to hunt and mm-hmm. hunt effectively is salmon. And so when salmon's gone, shit. What do they eat, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of another interesting thing is like the the importance of having innovators within a culture. Mm. Someone who isn't sticking to the status quo. Okay. Who's willing to try new weird things. Right. And then hopefully, you know, that's beneficial enough for the entire pod or what have you. And then it kind of progresses and, and develops into its own culture. That's really interesting because that just brings up so much um, that a lot of people think about when we're talking about human culture, too, Mm -hmm. is like Mm -hmm. the difference between creatives or artists versus people that are going to like really do something very efficiently, like pick a job and then just do that one job like a specialist. Mm -hmm. So you see that in other like species cultures as well. Absolutely. 
That's so cool. Yeah. That's honestly one of the most interesting things to me. And I wanted to ask you about the importance of studying social systems or cultures in general. And I think in a way that really emphasizes the question and and the the fact that there's certain uh, roles that are selected for Mm -hmm. universally across animal cultures. That's really cool. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, Yeah, sure. So what I'm thinking you're saying is, is just like the importance of culture and having these social relationships Mm. um, Mm. is like a big question that we've been trying to answer for a long time. Yeah. Like, why do we, why, why do we form these close relationships with people? Why do we have such unique cultures that differ so much between, you know, different areas of the world? Right. And then also why certain factors are, or like roles are selected Mm. for across cultures. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, that's still kind of a hard question. Um, I would say just based off of, like, my own thinking and some of the stuff that I've read Mm -hmm. is that we we develop these social relationships and cultures to help us survive better. Yeah. And then those innovators or people who fit into these specific roles again just kind of enhance that culture Mm -hmm. and drive it forward in some cases Mm -hmm. so like certain species have developed matriarchal societies Mm -hmm. and that helps them to survive better like different elephant herds for example if one has a really old matriarch they tend to have more offspring live longer and be healthier than a herd that doesn't have an old matriarch. Mm-hmm. And that's because they just, they know more. They've like been around longer. The cultural transmission. Exactly. Exactly. There. Like, it's so important for cultures to have elders yeah. to teach them these things. Mm-hmm. And yet you still want those younger, creative innovators to come up and be like, okay, yeah, we can do this, but what if we also try this other thing? Right. Just to keep that, you know, group surviving and thriving. Yeah. There's just so many parallels to how we are as oh, yeah. people. Yeah. And we tend to think about these in very human-centric ways mm-hmm. like you were talking about earlier, but mm-hmm. I mean it's it seems like a very like traditional or almost archetypal thing for like the oldest generation to be like ah the younger kids they (laughs) have forgotten their elders yeah yeah the younger kids are like going out and exploring things Mm -hmm. but also you have to learn from your parents yep yeah yeah we we're seeing that more and more as we you know sit out and just watch Mm -hmm. different populations and different species interact in the wild with their environment and with each other we're seeing more and more that their social systems and their you know setups essentially Mm -hmm. aren't very different from us yeah so what kind of variation do you see or like what comes to mind when you think about social systems and how they differ Mm. i would say like within a certain species the the typical social system is is the same between groups Mm -hmm. but like how they do certain things is different and Mm -hmm. that's kind of the culture side of it okay so like chimpanzees they all have similar social structure in that 
there's a male dominance hierarchy and then all of the females are just kind of like around okay um having babies and doing whatever they don't have that dominance hierarchy yeah but what starts to kind of differentiate different groups of chimpanzees is like tool use right so like one group might use rocks to break open nuts Mm -hmm. another group might use like twigs to get ants out of their or termites out of their little mounds and Mm -hmm. stuff um and then that tool use gets taught and passed down and then they start to separate more and more because they're kind of they're they're becoming more specialized and that's a lot of where you see that um, kind of like differentiation between social groups within okay. a species. Um, but also, for example, sperm whales, mm-hmm. they have like essentially different languages hmm. and names, different names for each other. Yeah. So what researchers have recently kind of found is that they have like three names that they announce every time Mm -hmm. they come near or rise up from their deep dives to get food they announce essentially like their main language so i would say like english (laughs) american Uh and then i would say thatcher because that's my group name like my family group name and then i would say amber because that's my name. So sperm whales. They do that. Have that sort of intro. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. So like you'll have a small little group of sperm whales. It's like four or five, even less than that, or sometimes more. Right. Um, and they all have the same family name. But they're a part of a larger group that meets every once in a while and like congregates together yeah and they all speak the same language but they still have different like family groups within that larger system and then of course even further individualization with each one has their own name their own personality you know their own role in their group holy shit (laughs) yeah and like different large groups of sperm whales don't interact with each other they don't talk to each other it's essentially like they're speaking different languages yeah and what they're called is they're called codas Uh um and it's a it's essentially how they're vocalizing so is it like two short calls and then a long one Mm -hmm. so it's like morse code in a way okay um and that's how they communicate or in some cases don't communicate with other sperm whales Wow. And do you have a sense of how, like, complex that language gets? Like, do we know the kind of things that post-introduction, <laughs> like, they talk about? Uh, not yet, No, I would say. Okay. Like, there's certain animals, um, humpback whales, for example. Mm-hmm. The males sing all the time. Mm-hmm. And we have absolutely no idea why. Yeah. They're not identifying themselves. They're not. It's not a mating call. Okay. They don't get, at least right now, it doesn't seem like they get any, like, evolutionary benefits from singing. Mm-hmm. But they still do it. And we're like, well, wow. why? Why is this happening? And we just don't know yet. Yeah. Like, we're, we're just touching the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, with understanding how these animals communicate and what they're communicating. Yeah. And there's just so much to look at when we're oh, looking yeah. at like how 
sounds can portray like meaning i mean Mm -hmm. we know that like the fluctuation of our tone of voice Mm -hmm. and like the cadence that we're speaking at and there's all these different factors and then like how is that different when you're looking at different species yeah i remember looking at a paper recently by a group from uc san diego that um if i remember correctly the basic gist of it was like the calls of starlings birds Mm -hmm. um could be the same but were different pitches yeah so it's like the same call just like different like a different pitch yeah Yeah. and that's kind of what we're seeing with like um fathers teaching certain like their their offspring and certain species of songbirds Uh how to sing is their their the offspring's call is very similar to the father's but they add an extra syllable or they add a different like rhythm to it or something Mm -hmm. they make one tiny little change that makes it specific to them yeah like where it's yeah it's just so cool well and that kind of brings me into thinking there's definitely animal social groups that are very alien to our oh yeah our system um i'm thinking specifically i think cowbirds don't have parent figures and so they meet up in these bachelor groups <laughs> and then they form their own language mm-hmm. um, in these bachelor groups. But interestingly, the language of that bachelor group is still like appealing to the females yeah. of the species. Yeah. That's, you can see that even within um, dolphins. Uh-huh. So dolphins, they'll have like little... <laughs> little friend groups within the larger pod. Yeah. And within those little friend groups, they start to develop their own, like, kind of way of speaking that's slightly different from the other friend groups in the Mm -hmm. pod. So it's just kind of like how humans, research has found that in humans, when we're trying to make a connection or enhance our connection with a certain individual, we match how we speak to them. Okay. So we use the same words. We use the same, like, slang. Right. Um, like, the, like, the cadence of how we speak. Mm-hmm. The more that you develop a relationship, so, like, the closer you are with a person, the more similar the way you speak is. Okay. And so... Wow. Yeah. Just like dolphins, we're kind of, you know, developing our own little subgroup slang. Yeah. Little, <laughs> little clicks. Yeah. Okay, so there's obviously a lot of similarities and, like, very complex things that mm-hmm. animal social groups are doing mm-hmm. that I guess a lot of people think about that as being – those sorts of things as being uniquely human. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know that whales gave intros that included uh, their language and their family name and yeah. their personal name. Yeah. That's wild. Like, it's crazy. I was kind of thinking about – a similar thing recently just because I've been meeting a lot of new people mm-hmm. um, due to moving. Like there's very similar things that everybody brings up when you meet each other. Like, yeah, like I'm so and so the weather. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Oh God, the environment is like, <laughs> it's commonly oppressing us all. So God. Uh, yeah. The weather, where you're from, mm-hmm. uh, like who, you know, what you do. Yeah. Yeah. What you do is really important. Okay. So there's a lot of similarities, Mm -hmm. uh, which are really striking. Where do you think the difference is? I mean, like, what do you think differentiates humans and, like, our experience of the world? And then, I mean, 
we have such an influence on the environment Mm -hmm. more than I don't that's yeah we I feel like as a group or as a species Mm -hmm. we don't use the environment in the same way that other animals and other species do you know like we we change the environment to fit us instead of us changing to fit the environment Mm -hmm. which I feel like is more common in, in most animal species is they adapt to fit their environment where we are like now we like the way we are we're just going to change the environment. Right. So, yeah, I mean. So I would come back by saying, like, there are a lot of animal species that do change their environment, like termites and ants mm-hmm. and beavers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in a way, each living organism is changing or altering the environment that it's coming up in. But I do see, I see your point very clearly. And <laughs> yeah, I I often think that one thing we could do is just really downsize and really pay attention to the things that are around us. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, do we need to tear up all these native plants so that we can plant some Kentucky bluegrass in our yard? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's, I think that's something that I've heard recently is like, oh, um, maybe we should just do like natural flora gardens or natural flora lawns. Right. And just let whatever naturally grows grow. Right. Instead of having these nice manicured lawns. Right. But then you hear about um, species of mushroom that the mycelial networks basically like manage the ecology of their area. Um, I, I can't go too deeply into that. Because <laughs> I, but I, I've heard that they basically like help certain trees sequester uh, carbon oh, versus cool. other trees to like make and they're responsible for like healthy forests and they kind of Mm. this is a lot of anthropomorphization (laughs) Um, it's hard not to do that and in some cases it's it can be beneficial it's not necessarily negative right but basically if if i'm correct yeah the effect of uh certain like mycelial mats is to basically structure certain parts of forests Mm -hmm. and prairies and things like that so Again, I don't know, it kind of brings me back to, like, is that really the differing factor? Like, are we that different? Are we just better at things? Do you think humans are more intelligent than other animals? Well, that's the thing, is, like, right now, I wouldn't say we have an answer for that. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing that I think, I don't even know, actually. It's just so hard to to find something that really sets humans apart some people may argue like it's consciousness yeah um and just how deeply and intensely we think about ourselves and the world and Mm -hmm. future plans and right outside of the world even yeah and that's what makes us more unique some people might say still that it's like our tool use is that we're able better able to come up with new tools that help us in the environment we're in and make life easier for ourselves. Right. And that's what led to, you know, humans coming about and becoming the huge dominant force that we are. Yeah. But I yeah, the more and more we learn about animals, I feel like the more we realize that humans aren't that special and yeah. different. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, I'm going to throw something at you. Okay. This is something I've thought about. I haven't talked about it that much so it might be totally wacky and tell me if it is um but i thought about the concept of abstraction as being 
like you have a base layer of information Mm -hmm. um let's say like chemistry Mm -hmm. and then abstracted on top of chemistry is biology because it takes like the foundations of chemistry and then creates its own system that operates in a way that you know is nested in the foundational system yeah so you have biology and then it's almost like on top of biology there might be this extra might be another level of abstraction Mm -hmm. that is information Mm -hmm. and i'm my thinking leads me to say like Maybe what is unique about us is we've been able to really concretize that um, abstraction of information. We've been able to like, I mean, brains do that, right? Yeah. But we've been able to like almost put our brains in the world. Yeah. You know what? I, I agree. I think that is something that right now, at least, we don't think animals do or at least not at the same level that humans do it Hmm. like we yeah like you said we have things nested upon nested upon nested you know inside of each other and built off of each other and we can think so abstractly Mm -hmm. and plan so abstractly and like create these weird crazy ideas yeah that other species might not be able to it's almost like the the creative element Mm -hmm. has like we've had that creative element taken farther and farther and farther in a certain direction to the point where we're like doing this sort of creative exploration in a realm that's not super physical. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, and and that's something that some research has kind of tried to focus on in animals really? like with um like giving birds puzzles mm-hmm. to figure out is like can they mentalize right. this system and hold all of these different working parts in their mind yeah and manipulate those parts in their mind without like doing trial and error mm-hmm. which is how a lot of species learn how to do something right you know they pick up a tool and see if that works and if it doesn't work then they try something else yeah whereas some species like of crows seem to hold these mentalizations of the problem and work through them in their minds and then the first time that they try something it works because they have trialed and errored but in their minds they can simulate things in their minds that's really interesting one of the research projects or like a paper that i wrote one of the things that i looked into was um metaphor usage and how people use metaphor Hmm. um or how it's learned and how that that um, comes out behaviorally. Mm-hmm. And this study was by professors Sleepian and Ambaddy in 2014, and they basically looked at metaphors that compared the past to and the future to either heaviness. Uh, yeah, they had the the past and the future, or the past and the present, mm-hmm. and they com- they would put one of those as like being heavy and so they'd write this metaphor that says like oh the past weighs down on you yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh then they had people go in and feel a book that either looked new or old and depending oh. on the metaphor condition that they were in um they would rate the book as being heavier based on what they were learning so they okay. came up with this 
hypothesis that basically was saying like wow it's it's pretty complex and i don't think i can pull it all in right now but basically we're basically simulating this in our mind and mm-hmm. then we're learning these metaphors and we're retroact like we're comparing it to pieces of our memory so yeah. that like our experience in the future is modulated by oh, yeah. what we have learned verbally or yep. like linguistically definitely <sighs> okay <laughs> so that <Deep> stuff <laughs> it's deep I wonder, though, I mean, being able to learn uh, how animals speak or, like, what they're discussing, mm-hmm. or, like, what their language means would allow us to really see, like, how they can abstract, like, oh, if, yeah. if that is a yeah. major difference I between agree. us. Yeah, because it is such a huge part of being able to mentalize is language mm-hmm. and how complex and, and descriptive in a way your language is right that's like a whole yeah that's a whole <laughs> other thing we just <laughs> like... brought the world of chomsky into <laughs> exactly a conversation yep oh god okay i'm very glad we went on to that tangent <laughs> <laughs> my next question officially mm-hmm. was uh what did you do you want to talk about your master's program Sure. Um, my master's program is very different from my main passion and interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I focused on hypnotism okay. and mirror neurons, okay. which mirror neurons are this, this tiny little group of neurons in your motor cortex um, that allow you to mirror behaviors. So what research has shown is that Whenever you perform a behavior, they fire in a certain pattern. Mm -hmm. And then whenever you see somebody else perform that same behavior, they fire in a similar pattern, but at a, like, less power in a way. Okay. And so that's kind of the theory of, like, what helps us to learn from watching, Mm -hmm. so social learning. Um, and a lot of people have made, or a lot of people, a lot of research has, has gone into the idea that neurons help us empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of, you know, back and forth as to whether we can say that definitively or not. Okay. But a lot of research kind of supports that idea that the better able your brain is to differentiate between something you do versus something that someone else does, Mm -hmm. the better able you are to empathize. Yeah. Just to go off in a little tangent here, Uh it seems like the popular conception of mirror neurons like takes that as fact and then runs with it. Oh, yeah. Um, And yeah, I guess the way that I've learned about mirror neurons is like they're very, they're in your premotor cortex. Is that right? Okay. So they're basically like simulating uh, different bodily motions Mm -hmm. um and you're like watching another person do that and your arms fire when Mm -hmm. their arms go off Mm -hmm. in their brain but the basic implication there that they allow us to empathize would mean that we are relating like physical movement to emotion yeah um the kind of like the big idea behind that, I would say, is like you're interpreting behavior. So okay. certain movements help you interpret the emotional state of that person. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of the idea is 
like with people that you're really close to, mm-hmm. your mirror neurons are going to like fire more similarly to how they would fire if you did that interesting movement or whatever. Okay. Um, if you're closer to that person, mm. strangers and like out groups, mm-hmm. it seems like the patterns and the intensity of those patterns differ okay. more so than if it was like of someone in your in group. Okay. So this brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. Mm, I guess what I'm basically trying to ask is, do you think that the similarity of firing between uh, familiar individuals is driven by um, the fact that that relationship makes like individuals in certain cliques, Mm. air quotes, uh, more similar, like their behavior becomes more similar and Mm. therefore you can assume that a familiar individual's behavior is the same because mm-hmm. maybe subconsciously you know that you act the same or do you think it's because you are I mean, the answer might be both <laughs> <laughs> that, it often is it often is that you're like giving more leeway to the stranger being like okay i don't know their pattern of behavior as well Therefore, I'm going to not assign certain interpretations to behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's both. Like you said, it's, I mean, it's so hard. It's kind of, you know, getting towards the, like, what came first, chicken or the egg idea. Like, are these Mm. mirror neurons differentiating and firing at different powers because, like, they are helping us differentiate who's in our group and who's not in our group right or yeah is it our behaviors that make our mirror neurons more similar right or whatnot um and that's kind of something that i think i tried to get at with my master's thesis Mm -hmm. with hypnosis you know it's like can hypnosis and hypnotic suggestions Mm -hmm. change how our mirror neurons are firing i of course you know my I didn't reach my end, so I don't want to make any claims about what I found or didn't okay. find. But it, it kind of seems in some research, there's there was one other paper, and of course I'm blanking on the author's names, um, that looked at this mm-hmm. and found that hypnosis and hypnotic suggestions do seem to change how your mirror neurons fire. In, in that it might be more similar to someone you know if you're under hypnosis? It seems to flip it. Okay. Can yeah. you go into detail about that? Yeah, so it's, forgive me, it has been a while since no, I thought yeah, about no these worries. things. Um, but there were a lot of, of course, kind of downfalls to that study, as there are for every study. Okay. Um, in that, like, how they determined hypnotic susceptibility, because it differs between, it differs person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, how actually hypnotizable that person is and if they were entering a state of hypnosis versus not okay um so they found yeah what you kind of would not expect in that like as you get into the hypnotic state your mirror neurons seem to fire like less powerfully i guess (laughs) it's kind of a weird way to say it Mm -hmm. um for yourself even so if you're watching Mm. your own hand it's it's more like you're you're watching another person's hand you kind of become removed that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's like certain studies within the field of hypnosis where it, it kind of seems to 
enhance that idea that this hypnotic state kind of takes you out of this feeling of self. Okay. So like one study found that under a deep state of hypnosis with a lot of hypnotic suggestions, they could make it so that someone wouldn't recognize themselves in the mirror. Wow. They could make it so that someone thinks that they are like a celebrity or whatever, Hmm. whoever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they have it so clearly in their mind that they're this other person that when you show them themselves in the mirror, they're like, no, that's not me. That's not what I look like. Wow. I can't look like that if I'm supposed to be, you know, Ryan Reynolds or whatever. Right. (laughs) Wow. It's wild. That opens a whole can of worms. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, That makes me wonder. Okay. First of all, it seems like then it might be a state of dissociation in a Mm -hmm, way. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it is kind of a state of dissociation because it is it's it's unique from sleep states or wakeful states yeah. or even like um like mindfulness and, and right. going into like the meditation it's different from that state as well okay and it's yeah I, I feel like it's this way of kind of dissociating and just letting someone else essentially take the reins right well oh, that's nuts <laughs> which like i i do want to say that the thing about hypnosis is yeah. it can only happen if you're open to it and if you want the suggestions to happen. Right. If you're not open to it, no one can hypnotize you. Interesting. So, like, all of the movies, you know, that are like, oh, I'm going to put you into this hypnotic state right. so I can control you. Spiral. Yeah. Even if you don't want to do it, you know, you have no choice. That's not that's not the case. Okay. You know, you have a choice in whether or not you get hypnotized. Okay. And people, do they remember being hypnotized? It depends. Okay. That, yes, is very on interesting. on the suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> like to forget this? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's like so he people fall on a on a a spectrum from yeah. low hypnotizable to highly hypnotizable, mm-hmm. um, and it's a normalized curve. So most people are moderately hypnotizable, and what that means is some suggestions will work on mm. them, but not all. Okay, and that's again the majority of people are like that. Okay. Um, I'm moderately, but like moderate, highly susceptible to hypnosis. Hmm. So there's certain things that I do, but I also take a lot of convincing. Okay. So like with my experience of being hypnotized, it was very much like I was just so relaxed and I, you know, I was listening to these suggestions and I was like, oh, I guess I could do it. Yeah. I don't know. You're thinking about it then. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I was still kind of in my head, mm-hmm. but some people... Shut down. No, they're not in their head at all. They're just like, yep, <laughs> I'm going to do this suggestion. No problem. Do you know if that's related to the personality factor? Like it seems a- like it is. Agreeableness, maybe? Openness to experiences. Oh, really? Um, oh, there's a couple other things that, that are sense. seems to be like correlated at least to how hypnotizable you are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. And like that's kind of why like a lot of... You know, you always wonder in those, like, hypnosis shows, like, are the people actually getting hypnotized? Most likely, Mm -hmm. yeah. Because people who are highly hypnotizable are more likely to be open to that experience and open to letting it happen and open to volunteering to go up on stage and act like a fool. Right. Sometimes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's, 
yeah, it seems to kind of match people's personalities yeah. in some ways. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, we had a hypnotist visit my school when I was in junior high or high school. Mm-hmm. And, and it's uh, a very common thing, I feel. <laughs> yeah, another way to make money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I went on stage, and I had just been at the dentist, and so I was like kind of high off of the laughing gas. <laughs> and he announced to my entire like the entire audience which was like a large percentage of the small town that i grew up in that i must have been drunk (laughs) (laughs) it was messed up yep just me little (laughs) middle school steven Mm -hmm. drunk as skunk (laughs) (laughs) uh okay so the next question that i had Mm -hmm. based on what we're talking about is how how does it differ from mindfulness in a meditative state? Because my understanding of the goal of a meditative state is to kind of quiet that self and mm-hmm, then to like mm-hmm. become absorbed into like the entire conscious experience. Yeah. I would say that it, it's, it's more similar than different. Oh, interesting. Um, but maybe that hypnosis is just even deeper hmm. into that state. Really? Um, I don't exactly remember all of the literature on that. Okay. Um, looking back at my thesis, I could probably tell you. Okay. Um, but it, it it's all pretty much how, like, what frequency your brain waves are at. Interesting. So, like, in sleep, you know, or wakefulness, um, alpha waves are most common. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems as though when you're going into these different states, different waves are more prominent. Um, so like in deep sleep, it's Delta and, um, there's all these like, uh, theories and hypotheses about like what gamma waves are supposed to do. And maybe it's to help us, you know, change our thoughts and, and go from one topic to another, or maybe it is to help us go into different states, whatever, you know, you think a state is. Yeah. Okay. So. A brain wave is kind of like a macro level description of brain activity. Yep. And um, the difference between like alpha, gamma, theta, whatever, would be frequency? Yes. Okay. What frequency um, they're coming in at, essentially. So like with the EEG, so electrodes stuck all over your head and stuff, pick up on these electric waves mm-hmm. that your brain is putting off. And that's like how... Neurons are firing and patterns of firing um, create that kind of like electrical field almost that we can pick up on with EEG. Um, Okay. (laughs) So EEG, you're looking at brain waves, um, like that macro level Mm -hmm. of analysis. Mm -hmm. And so you've really gone in your career path Mm -hmm. um, from like initially just interested in animals and like what are they doing and like learning about them to going more into the behavioral side with your undergrad and then starting to delve into (gasps) like the neural side Mm -hmm. with your master's Mm -hmm. and that leads me to where you are now yeah do you want to talk about that yeah um I would say yeah it has been kind of like a wandering path Mm -hmm. of me just trying to figure out exactly what I want to do so, you know, I, I loosely had these interests. 
science. Like I'm interested in neuroscience mm-hmm. and how the brain works and how the brain affects behavior. But I'm also just interested in behavior itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, in my undergrad, it was just kind of like learning the basics and kind of getting an a- idea of what potential things I could um, do with my degree. Right. In my master's, I would say it was me exploring the neuroscience part of things a bit more mm-hmm. and learning the scientific method really in depth and learning all about statistics and getting a really strong um, science like foundation essentially mm-hmm. that would help me kind of do whatever it was that I ended up deciding on studying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then here I thought it would be, it's a, it's a nice mesh of my interest in animal behavior and my interest in neuroscience and then just, yeah, working in the lab and, and seeing all of these different methodologies and these different points of view it's mm-hmm. just helped me more and more to solidify that animal behavior and just animal behavior on its own is what is most interesting to me and what I'm behavior. most passionate about. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's good. I, <laughs> I feel like it's, I mean, it's at least validating for me because I'm like taking the time to figure out oh, what yeah. it is. And it's hard to know, you know, what you want to do for the rest of your life without giving it a try. Right. <laughs> like you, you can kind of have an idea of what you're interested in. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's hard to know. Does that actually suit you? Right. And you might like do it once and then go to something else and be like, no, no, I actually mm-hmm. like that thing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about um, what your PhD program is about and what you're working on right now? Yeah. So... Um, PhDs in experimental psych with emphasis in animal behavior. Um, so I've mainly been focusing on animal behavior and how species form relationships. Um, and if they form relationships and if those relationships seem to be individualized. Mm -hmm. So like my relationship with you is unique and different from any of my other relationships yeah and the big question there is like okay but do animals also do that right and if so how Mm -hmm. like there is a lot of research out there into how humans form relationships and how people become friends Mm -hmm. um but there's still so many unknowns we're still not really sure um And so hopefully we can start to get more answers if we start to understand more basic, in some ways, relationships. And some would claim, um, including myself, that animal relationships, at least right now, seem to be more, like, basic. Okay. um, And would really allow for, like, a jumping off point into understanding what relationships are, why they matter, and how they're formed. Okay, that's really cool. So you're looking at how animals form relationships. What animals are you looking at? Uh, looking at a species of rodent. It's called the daegu. It's native to Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, they are within the same like species group as chinchillas, but they essentially just live at a different altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, they are diurnal, so they forage and are most active during the day they're very gregarious which means that they're very social okay more so than 
many of the other rodent species that we tend to use in science, like mice and rats. Okay. Um, they seem insole and at all, if you want to say. <laughs> um, just came out with a study on, on partner preferences in dagoos as compared to other species of rodents. Mm-hmm. Um, so like prairie voles, we use a lot for studying um, pair bonding. Okay. Um, and so they, in a partner preference test, which is essentially a three-chamber test mm-hmm. where there's a neutral chamber with no animal in it. Mm-hmm. There's a chamber with a stranger that that animal, like your focal subject, has never interacted with before. And there's a chamber with often like a cage mate or a, a sibling that they have been housed with for their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And the whole test is to see which animal they spend the most time with. Um, if, you know, the behaviors that they display differ between the two animals. Right. Um, with prairie voles, they seem to spend the most time with their cage mate. Mm-hmm. Very rarely interact with the stranger. Um, they only really huddle and, like, hang out with their cage mate. Okay. Daegus, on the other hand seem to split their time between the stranger and the cage mate. Okay. So they're more willing, it seems, to form relationships or, or huddle with or whatever you might want to classify it as mm-hmm. um, with strange, unknown individuals. Wow, that's interesting. So in a way, the voles are also being social by nesting with oh, their, yeah. their partner. Yeah. But it's like degus are uniquely social Mm -hmm. in that they will like go out on a limb to see other animals yeah yeah and like rats um rats don't really seem to be interested in being social period Hmm. really yeah they and and it's kind of the same with mice where like they might go and investigate but they're not going to spend the majority of their time with either animal huh if you were to speculate on why that might be what would your speculation be? My speculation would be how their natural social culture and social system is in the in the wild. So okay. um, prairie voles form pair bonds that last their entire lives. Yeah. Very rarely need to interact with strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, less like turnover, meaning there's less like death and introduction of new strangers into... Okay. Um, the the group um rats i i mean lab rats are so different now than wild type rats and wild type mice that it's it's kind of hard to argue one way or another and maybe that's maybe that's why they're not interested in in social others you Mm -hmm. know they've been bred to be lab animals for years and years and years so maybe they're okay with being alone more so than other species that are more more recent Mm -hmm. or you know have come into the field of science um more recently than the rats have and and dagoos it seems within their natural setting there's a high turnover so that means that a lot of animals are either moving to a different group or a different colony right um or they're you know food for predators um but they also have a high rate of 
other individuals coming in as well. Interesting. So it seems as though like every year or two years or so, they are met with all of these new strangers and they all of a sudden have to figure out how to work together and how to survive. Okay. And they, yeah, they, they share burrows. They nurse each other's young. Mm -hmm. They care for each other's young. Even the males have been seen to like sit on the young and keep them warm. Hmm. Um, Like other, other, it's not their children. It's other. Yes. Not their children. children. Yeah. So like like within a group. Oh, it's very unusual. Um, Within the group, there's like typically one to two males yeah and then like five to six sometimes eight females so it's like men have a little harem Uh um and so within that small family group that's they nurse their each other's young sit on each other's young help care for each other Hmm. um but then within other groups they don't do that okay okay so there's evidence that they're like almost more pro-social than other yeah yeah that's interesting. Yeah, and it's really it's cool because it's it also doesn't seem to be driven by like genetics. So they're not getting you know, they're, they're raising each other's young isn't helping their children to survive. Right. Any more than not helping, you know, the others young or whatever, what have you. Right. Um so in other words, being more social doesn't seem to have any evolutionary benefits for them. Yeah, and that's like, from what I remember from my comparative psych classes, I mean, the gene is the basic driver of evolution as far as we know. Mm-hmm. And often it seems, yeah, yeah, to be like, okay, auntie will take care of chil- like children <laughs> because in the long run that's like that's part of her part, yeah, unique that's genetic her genes. yeah getting passed down but these animals will take care of each other's young mm-hmm. without any relation genetic relatedness yeah that's really unique yeah i can and see like there's a um a study out there that's showing that um the amount to which they will spend investigating another's like scent Mm -hmm. is dependent not on genetic relatedness but on familiarity level wow so if they have never met like this sister um who has you know very similar genes to them Mm -hmm. um they're more likely to spend a lot of time investigating their scent than they are to someone who's not genetically related to them but they've spent their whole lives with that make sense yeah okay no, no. say it one more time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just for my sake because yeah. i wasn't paying attention so um the time spent sniffing another's scent uh-huh. seems to be different not based on how genetically related the individual is to them oh. but how well they know each other okay so like if my estranged sister for example right. you know i never met her before less i'm less likely to you know spend time talking to her or like smelling her around. pillow <laughs> yeah <laughs> smelling her t-shirt eh, don't know this yeah, person like, but if it's like your best friend. My, my best friend or my brother who yeah. you know i grew up with and lived with right. my whole life i'll just be like sniff sniff meh i know you okay so, so you will opposite, spend actually yeah more time smelling the stranger yeah than i'd be like wait a second person. I don't know this person. 
What can their scent, their pheromones, tell me about this person? Okay. Whereas, like, yeah, with my brother, I'd be like, I know about him. I don't care. That's interesting. And, okay, do you think that's more similar to humans than other animals? Uh, Like, do you think, Mm. I mean, we do adoption and foster care Mm -hmm. and, like, donate to charities and all these sorts of things. Do you think that, yeah. I would say it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Um, I haven't delved into that area of research very much, so I can't speak to what's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, yeah, that's kind of similar, you know? What is that? It's like, um, like you form your own family in the, in the, you choose, you can choose your family. Like you right. can develop Blood doesn't always mean that you're going to have a great relationship or choose to be around that person. Um, it's more often the relationship that you that you make with yeah. another individual than if you're related to them or not. Right. That also brings into question, like, the environmental factors of, like, human society, mm-hmm. how that's similar to Daegu society and how that might be changing. Like, yeah. now we're, like, a hyper individualized society where we're expected each individual is expected to go out and make their own path and like move away from their family (laughs) at least in the u.s or at least from my experience Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not a very collectivist society and so i wonder if that emphasizes that behavior like we were talking about it might be that's and like we are we're built to interact with people we don't know right and develop relationships it's like it seems to be one of like the main things that we are meant to do (laughs) is to be social yeah um and yeah it kind of seems to match i would say onto daegu social behavior more so than the other rodent species Mm -hmm. who you know they choose a mate they stick with that mate for their entire lives in prairie voles um and don't really have any interest in forming connections with anyone else unless they absolutely have to, like if their mate dies. Right. Whereas, yeah, we are like, you know what? Bring on all of the relationships. I'm ready for it. <laughs> Some of us, anyway. Some, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, God. And then you talk about individual variation. Oh, gosh, yeah. And that's kind of what I've been experiencing with my own data is it, it seems to just be so variable, hmm. which in a way kind of makes sense you know right each relationship is going to be different than the others and different in different ways yeah um so yeah it's i would say more similar to our relationships where you know my relationship with my siblings is going to be very different right yeah even though you know they're both my siblings right yeah and that kind of ties it back to you know what we were talking about earlier with there being like these different social roles within Mm -hmm. a social structure Mm -hmm. and I mean that might be a a good thing in a way if you're getting that sort of variation between individuals within Degus it might be like an indicator that they're like a very interesting social model because if they're like very adaptable socially and if there's like a high number of complex roles that they're Mm -hmm. like filling yeah that could be i i can see how that would be a very fulfilling 
right? research project. It's very exciting. No matter what we find, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited about the results. Yeah, well, and I imagine it's extraordinarily hard too, because like, how many uh, factors have we talked about oh my gosh, within yeah. like the last? Yeah, because like sociality seems to also kind of depend on context and then also on what behavior you're measuring. Yeah. Um, you know, there's all these variables and, yeah. and social behavior is never easy to understand. No, there's I... just too much going on. <laughs> well, it's like the brink of abstraction, like we were talking about earlier, like you have this you have these organisms and you can go as far as you want to understand them like anatomically and physically. But then when you start talking about their behavior and their sociality, you're like having to take the abstract and the basic yep. into account yep. to really figure out what's going on. There. Definitely. How's that been? Really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been really hard and you know, you go back and forth on, okay, what should we, like, what measures should we use? Right. Um, maybe we should use this one. Oh, I don't know. Maybe we should use the other. What if we use all of them? What if we use two of them? You know, like, there's right. just so many combinations. It's hard to settle on one. And in some cases, that means, okay, I'm just going to do a, a bunch of different analyses in some ways to see what our data is trying to show us right instead of you know imposing this specific framework onto my data i want to look at my data and see what it tells me right in a way you're like almost having to be more creative than um a lot of sectors of science because there's not like a strong background to build off of yeah, like there's there's definitely like hypotheses and theories that kind of help us to make predictions as to what we would see. But we're still so new to this area of research that, yeah, there isn't a lot of like solid <laughs> background information that we are like, you know what, there's no other way that like this works. Right. So we're just, yeah, trying to be more open and letting the data tell us what's going on okay trying to figure out how relationships happen yep okay one thought i've had recently that i thought would be a good question for you is you know the last like this whole conversation we've been talking about like the love for the idea and Mm -hmm. like really the inspiration behind like what's going on Mm -hmm. um and i imagine that that isn't your everyday attitude and work question mark (laughs) um (laughs) and yeah i i guess the question is how do you stay in touch with the ideas that drive your passion in the context of it being also a job um i think it's really helpful to just come at it with an open mind and be like everything that I'm doing Mm -hmm. is a learning experience Mm -hmm. I can take even if it's just like one small little tidbit from this one huge project that I'm working on yeah that's little tidbit might be really helpful for me in the future yeah so just being open to absorbing all of this information all of these skills and techniques and methods and everything at some point, I will probably need to use it. Yeah. 
so it's like staying in touch with that beginner's mind almost or yeah. just like the the attitude that yep. like everything can everything can be a learning experience exactly amber thank you so much for coming on the node yeah. this podcast thanks it's for having me really fun yeah it's a, lots of cool conversations yeah we should uh get back together and talk again maybe once you've finished your stack of books <laughs> right yeah <laughs> that'd be great cool thanks Thanks for listening. You can find Amber on Twitter at AmberLynn, A-M-B-E-R-L-Y-N-N, 424, AmberLynn424, on Twitter. She reposts a lot of work similar to what we were talking about here, as well as anything she'll be getting up to or publishing. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where her research takes her. In the show notes, which you can find in the episode menu, I will put links to some of the work that we referenced in the podcast. You can also find the Node's tip jar where you can support the Node by donating an amount of money of your choosing. As always, a great way to support the podcast is to rate it, write a review, or recommend it to a friend or family. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.